Uh, if you're new with us tonight, we're in the middle of a series in, in 1 Corinthians. It's a, a great letter to a, a church that has really gone wild. Um, it's a church that have moved on from Christ. Uh, they think that they uh, need more than Christ. And it's a church, really, that are not really talking and living as though they're really Christians. Uh, so if you were here last week in chapter 5, there's a, a man who's claiming to be a Christian and yet is sleeping with his stepmom. And the shock from last week was not so much that, <coughs> excuse me, that the, that the man was committing this sin. The shock was that the, the church had failed to do anything about it. The, the church had failed to discipline this man for his ungodly behaviour. Uh, tonight we're looking at uh, how our relationship with Jesus impacts two particular areas of life. One, one is our conflicts and the other is our attitude towards sex. So as a, a believer, as a man or a woman who trusts in Jesus Christ, how should that change or influence your attitude towards sex in this sex-mad world that we live in? And the other, other issue is, is, if you claim to follow Jesus, how does that transform the way that you deal with conflict or dispute with another believer? There are two areas, conflict and sex. So let me pray and let's look at the scriptures together. Uh, Lord God, thank you for the joy of meeting. Thank you for this church family. Uh, thank you for the joy of things like engagements and marriage. Thank you for Scott and Cinch and pray that you would uh, bless their marriage and go before them, that you would uh, help them to, to honour you in their marriage. And thank you now for the time in the scriptures and I pray that as we look at the word together, uh, your spirit would enable me to speak clearly and that he would do a powerful work in each one of us as well. We ask that for Jesus' sake. Amen. Uh, conflict is all around us. Uh, we love a, a good lawsuit. Here are some of the most ridiculous lawsuits I could find on the internet. A lady called Kathleen Robertson from Texas. She was awarded $80,000. What happened was that she, she broke her ankle when she tripped over a, a toddler who was running around in a furniture shop. Now the furniture shop were obviously a bit perplexed by the verdict because the toddler was actually her own son yet she won $80,000 that is bizarre isn't it how about this one 19 year old Carl Truman of LA he won $74,000 and medical expenses when his neighbour ran over his hand with his Honda Accord Carl said that he uh, failed to notice there was someone at the wheel of the car when he tried to steal the hubcaps from his neighbour this is my particular favourite. Mrs. Grzynski, true story. She purchased a brand new 30-foot uh, mobile home, mobile car rather. On her first trip home, she drove on the freeway, set the cruise control at 120k an hour and calmly left the driver's seat to go into the back and make herself a sandwich. Not surprising, the car left the freeway and crashed and overturned and she sued the car company for not advising her in the owner's manual that you couldn't actually do this. And the jury, they awarded her one and three quarter million dollars compensation and a new car. What a, a crazy world that we live in. Uh, all these people suing each other over crazy and ridiculous things. But we love a good court case. In 2005, there were over a million court cases here in Australia. Over a third of them here in Sydney. 
uh, from the criminal cases right down to the small claims, from the, the child custody down to, down to the driving offences, millions of dollars spent on legal conflict, not to mention the emotional pain and the, the fear and the anxiety and the stress, but, but we love a good court case. In a way, we've turned legal things into entertainment. You've got those dreadful shows like Judge Judy or Boston Legal or even Underbelly. Uh, we, we love the, the, co- the conflict and the lawsuits. It's the same uh, in Corinth. They loved a good conflict, a good lawsuit. In Corinth, the courts wouldn't meet in a private chamber. They'd meet in a public marketplace. A bit like holding a court down in Circle Quay or holding court under the bridge. And everyone could go and watch and listen. It was entertainment, if you want. And the issue here is that, in 1 Corinthians 6, is that there are two Christian men and one man is suing another. We know from verse 8, the words he uses are uh, cheating and wrong. They're, They're money words. He's been defrauded in some way. And he's taken him to court. You've got two Christian men who are thrashing it out in front of the public and a non-Christian judge. To help you really get into the passage, the question is, what do we do when you've got a Christian employee who is disputing with this Christian boss? How do you resolve that conflict? Or you've got a Christian business partnership that's turned sour. What do you do if you sell your car to someone at church? and they fail to repay you? What do you do when you rent your house out to a couple at church and they fail to pay the rent? What do you do uh, when uh, a Christian here here cheats you out of money or or property? What do you do when you're just in conflict with somebody else here in church? What do you do? How, How does knowing Jesus transform the way you handle your conflict? And the overall theme of this talk is this. Settle your conflicts within the church. Settle your conflicts within the body. Don't rush off to court. You don't have to file a petition. You can settle it. You can sort it here in church. Look at verse 1. If any of you has a dispute with another, dare he take it before the ungodly for judgment? instead of before the saints. The the word ungodly, he's not saying that the Roman courts are corrupt. He's saying the people you go before, they're not committed to the laws of God. So how can they resolve your disputes according to to God's standards? The shock here is a bit like last week in chapter 5. It's not so much that the men are fighting, it's the fact that the church does nothing about it. The whole chapter is written in a second person plural. You the church. How can you let this dispute happen? How have you failed as a church to deal with this dispute? One brother suing another in public and you just let it happen. How dare you, he says in verse 1. How dare you? It's kind of that language of, how dare you let a teenager go to a strip club? How dare you do that? How dare you sit in church with two brothers who are fighting in public and you do nothing about it? to settle your conflicts within the gathering. Let me just say a a few things. Paul is not talking about conflicts between the Christian and the the non-Christian. These are two brothers who are fighting. Uh, Paul is not condemning the secular courts. Uh, Read Romans 13. He says that, that God has put in place governments and rulers and authorities and lawyers. We're called to obey the law. And if we don't have courts, then this society would, would go, to, go, to, go to the dogs. The courts are good for 
justice in our land and for the right punishment of crime. He's not condemning secular courts. He's also not talking about criminal matters or, or weighty matters. Look at the words he uses in verse 1. It's a, a dispute in verse 1. Or verse 2, he says, trivial cases, end, end of verse 2. He's not talking about murder or abuse or armed robbery. There's a criminal and they must go to the court. There's a real problem, isn't there, where the church tries to cover up or deal with criminal matters. When the priest commits a crime against innocent children, that must go to court. Or the paedophiles or the rapists. The church can't protect those people from the courts. He's not saying that Christians will never go to courts. But he is saying when you have a dispute, a conflict, whether it's money, whether it's property, whether it's relationships, whatever it is, don't rush to the courts, settle it amongst themselves. Let me give you three reasons why you shouldn't go to the secular courts first. They're all from the text. Firstly, because of the final judgment. Look at verse 2. Don't you know the saints will judge the world? And if you judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Satan is just another word for the Christian. He's saying, he's talking about the final judgment, and he's saying in some strange way, the Christians will, will sit with the Lord Jesus on that last day, and we will pass judgment on the non-Christian world. That's kind of does my head in a bit but you know read Daniel 7 and read Matthew 19 and in some strange way that I can't quite grasp I will sit with Jesus and say well you if you're a Christian on the thrones and we will judge the people and we will judge the angels and what he's saying is the people that you are asking to make a judgment on you over these matters these trivial matters how bizarre when on the last day you will pass judgment on them why go to them for judgment when you can do it within the body? He's also kind of saying that the final judgment puts all your trivial matters into perspective, doesn't it? I mean, fighting over a bit of cash, fighting over a harsh word, fighting over a bit of slander or a bit of land, is trivial compared to that last day's judgment. Reason number two why it's stupid to go to secular courts is this, because of the non-Christian worldview. Look at verse 4. If you have disputes over such matters, appoint as judges even men of little account in the church. That could be an imperative. He could be saying, you know, even, even the worst Christian in church is better equipped to judge and to, to settle this dispute than, than the best non-Christian judge. Or it could be a question. So look at, look at the footnote. Let me see in your Bibles. Uh, do you appoint as judges men of little account in the church? It's a question. He could be saying, now how can you entrust judgment to people who don't count for anything in the church? And because the word little account means to be despised or to be held in disdain, I think as a question, he's basically saying, how can you let someone with no standing in church pass a sentence over these silly, trivial matters within the body? Now spot the irony in verse 5. I say it's a shame you. Is it possible that there's nobody among you wise enough to judge this dispute between believers? The, the Corinthians think that they are wise. They, they pride themselves in their wisdom. He's saying, is there really nobody in your church 
who can sit down with you as brothers and point to the scriptures and, and settle this? Is there nobody? See, the thing about disputes amongst Christians is that at the root is sin. Imagine that, that somebody doesn't pay you for some property that they're renting. Now sure, they've defrauded you, but at the root it's just sin. Uh, they haven't kept their word, or they're stealing, or it's pride, or they're coveting. The root issue is sin. Uh, and no secular judge will deal with that, will they? Uh, the secular judge will deal with a verdict or, or a sentence, but they can't deal with sin. Because they don't see things through the lens of God, or through the word of God. They have a different worldview. And the third stupid reason to go to court is because of our witness. And that's there in verse 6. But instead, one brother goes to the law against another, and this in front of unbelievers. He's saying, you know, when you've got two Christians going at it hammer and tong in front of Judge Judy or in front of the public court, he said, the, the unbelieving watching world looks at you and says, I thought they were Christians. I thought they were supposed to be different. They're no different from the rest of us, are they? He says in verse 7, the very fact you have lawsuits means you've already lost. He said, you brought shame on the church, you brought shame on the gospel, you brought shame on the Lord Jesus Christ. What he's saying, friends, is that this, this body is our courtroom. We're like a family, aren't we? And so when a brother and a sister in dispute, what you do is you bring another family member in, a third person, that you sit with them and you listen and you, you help them understand each other and you point them to the scriptures. And what's the aim? The aim is Reconciliation. And that's the big difference. You see, a secular court does many, many, many things. A secular court can punish evildoers, they can protect the innocent, they can sustain society, but they can't bring reconciliation. They don't aim to bring reconciliation. The aim is justice, the aim is sentence, the aim is, is law and order. But the church, it's reconciliation. Let me give you one example. Uh, two Christian businessmen here in Sydney... Uh, they set up business together, but within two years there was feuding and there was fighting, a real case. And they were fighting over wages, they were fighting over who was going to be the director, and they were fighting over holidays. And it got to the stage where these two people, they couldn't talk to each other, they couldn't work together, they couldn't come to church together. They had a choice to make. Do they go to court? What they chose to do was ask the church for help and one Christian minister sat with them just the two of them and they, he listened and he talked he heard one side, he heard another he opened the scriptures and it took 10, 11, 12 sessions you know the end of that last session those two men prayed together and they prayed for each other and they asked for forgiveness they, they couldn't work together anymore but they actually forgave each other, they were reconciled if there's a fight amongst you, if there's conflict here in this body, I'm urging you, I'm urging you to bring in a brother, to bring in a sister, to seek reconciliation. It's hard to do, isn't it? If we feel like we've been wronged, what we really want is justice. Or we want my rights. And we want to feel as though I, I, I've actually been vindicated in some way. How are we going to do this? Well, that's where knowing Jesus Christ makes all the difference. A relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ will transform your attitude towards conflict. 
1 Corinthians is a bit like banging a drum is saying it's about Christ, it's about knowing Jesus uh, look at verse 9 with me don't you know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God don't be deceived, neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards nor slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God and that is what some of you were there will be a judgment day there will be a day when we all stand before God and the ungodly or the wicked they will not stand so verse 9 the sexually immoral remember that's just a a catch all word porneia all sexual sin outside of the, the one man one woman lifelong union in marriage whether it's sex before marriage, sex outside of marriage, bringing a third person into the marriage, whether it's bisexuality, whether it's wife swapping, it's all wrong. The idolaters, uh, people who, who love something or, or someone more than they love Jesus, the person who loves their job more than Jesus or, or their clothes more than Jesus, and they find an identity in those things. The adulterer, the married person having sex outside of marriage, the male prostitutes or the homosexual offender and I know this is contentious but the Bible is clear anyone who who practices listen carefully, practices gay sex I think the word for male prostitute is I'll be as blunt as I can without being crude is the taker and, and the homosexual offender is the giver but whatever it is the active ongoing practicing of gay sex is not compatible with knowing Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour and before you say, oh, he's just picking on gays. No, he's not. He's picking on everybody. He's picking on, on, on the, the heterosexual who's sleeping around. He's picking on, on the bloke who loves his career more than Jesus. He's picking on the greedy person and the drunkard. And yes, the, the person who's having gay sex. Listen carefully. In this list, he's not talking about the, the one-off act or, or the slip-up. He's not saying, you know, if you slept with your girlfriend, you're going to hell. He's not saying, if you got drunk once, you're going to hell. But these are people who persist in these things. They adopt that as a way of life. They habitually sleep around or their whole life is shaped by money and by greed or or they choose to live an active gay lifestyle. That is incompatible with with knowing Jesus and they will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the reason he tells us is not so that we can sit here and look down on those people. The reason he tells us these words is that we're supposed to look at that list and say, I'm there. I'm not going to ask you to put your hand up, but we're all there, aren't we? I'm in that list. Uh, You're in that list. That is what some of us were. Greedy, and idolaters, and adulterers, and slanderers. We were there. And we have no standing in the courtroom of heaven. I have no defence before a holy God. But, verse 11, that great word, but, but you were washed. Uh, your filth was removed but you were sanctified you were set apart for holy living but you were justified you were made right with God in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of God he says in in the courtroom that really counts on that last day you will stand there before God and you should have the the sentence guilty but God says no 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 Paul Dale not guilty because the penalty has been paid by Jesus Christ See, God in his mercy has forgiven us and acquitted us and transformed us. And friends, when you spend time thinking about your trial, if you want, when you 
fill your mind with your own relationship about Jesus and how much you've been forgiven, that will transform your disputes with each other, won't it? We need to learn to say, I have treated my Saviour far, far worse than this person is treating me. We need to learn to say, I've experienced forgiveness and I want to offer forgiveness to this person. I've experienced reconciliation, I want to be reconciled. He's just saying, you know, be who you are. That's why he says in verse 7, why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? And we could think of a thousand reasons why not, but they all begin with the words I or but or me or my. But it's not about me, it's about Jesus. And I don't know what conflicts you're dealing with. It might be money, it might be property, it might be relationships, it might be slander. But you've got to sit there and you've got to say, when they wrong you, you've got to learn to say, Father forgive them. Help me to be like Christ. When they cheat on you, you say, well, I'll endure it. I'm not saying you get trampled on. I'm not saying that there aren't times you mustn't speak out. But let's stop talking about my rights and my justice and me being vindicated and start saying, Lord, help me to live like Jesus. Taking wrong, not retaliating. Maybe just stop and ask the question, how can my words bring glory to my Jesus? How can my behaviour show that I have been washed and I have been sanctified and I have been justified? And maybe you're here tonight and there's people in the pews that you're in conflict with that you just sit down with and call a brother alongside and settle the dispute within the church rather than fighting and going outside to the unbelieving world. Settle your conflicts within the church. That's conflicts. Let's talk briefly about sex. We talked a lot about sex last week, so this will be much shorter. Uh, we do live in, in a, a sex-mad world. You know, sex in magazines, sex in newspapers, sex on billboards, sex in the city, sex on the street. Uh, you know, if you're not sexually active, there's something wrong with you. And if you're dating, you must be having sex. Uh, sex is like this, the wallpaper of our 21st century, isn't it? 85% of, uh, of blokes, 76% of women are sexually active, apparently, before the age of 18. 45% of men and 40% of women admit to having a one-night stand. 90% of people in Australia, according to a survey there in 2005, think that sex before marriage is acceptable. And this is the staggering one. Only 40% of people think that extramarital sex is always wrong. Only 40% thinks extramarital sex is always wrong. And we sit here and we think, oh, we're the church, we're different. No, we're not. There are people here sleeping around, there's people here indulging in affairs or addicted to pornography. So, so how does knowing Jesus transform your attitude towards sex? Uh, Paul says very briefly, honour your body. Honour God with your body, rather. Honour God with your body. If you claim to know Jesus, use your body in a way that honours your Lord Jesus. Paul has some slogans here which I think resonate with our 21st century. He says, that the Corinthians are saying, I'm free to do what I want. So verse 12, everything is permissible for me. I'm free to do what I want. If there's two consenting adults and they're both, they're both above legal age, they can do what they want with their body. I'm free. I'm forgiven. I'm heading to heaven. I'm free. 
And Paul says, no, no, just because society says it's okay doesn't mean that God says it's okay. Just because you think it's okay, other people are being hurt and other people are being damaged. That's the thing about sex. It leaves a trail of damage and betrayal and broken, lonely people. And you're not free. Look at verse 12. Everything is permissible for me, they say. No, no. Not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible? No. I will not be mastered by anything. That's the thing about sex, it actually enslaves you. You're enslaved to your lust, you're enslaved to your passions, you can't stop sleeping with your boyfriend, you, you, you can't stop looking at porn. It's addictive. Sex promises freedom, but actually entraps you. This is true freedom, listen, this is true freedom. That you are free, you're not free to do what you want. You are not free to do what you want, but you do have the power to do what is right. That is freedom. The freedom to say no. Uh, the freedom to be self-controlled. The freedom to honour God with your body. That is true freedom. Uh, the second slogan they're saying is, well, sex is just natural. Look at verse 13. Food for the stomach and stomach for the food. What they're saying there is, you know, if, if I'm hungry, I, I eat. If I'm thirsty, I drink. If I, if I have the urge, I have sex. It's just an animal instinct. I mean, it's a biological function. God has made me sexual, and if I feel like it, I just do it, they say. But sex is not like food, is it? Listen to how Paul describes sex in verse 16. The two will become one flesh. End of verse 16. The two will become one flesh. Quoting Genesis chapter 2, he's saying sex is when two individuals become one. They're united in body and in mind and in spirit. Not just physically, but their whole emotional beings are united. The soul and the mind is united. And there's good sex within marriage. And there's bad sex where the sex without the commitment and you, you're, you're united, you're one flesh with one person and another person and another person and somebody else's wife and then another person. And it's damaging. We know that sex isn't like food. Food goes into the mouth and out of the body, but the sex is intimate, it's personal, it's beautiful within marriage. But when used badly, it hurts people. The third excuse they're given is, it's my body. It's my body. I work my body, I tone my body, I condition my body, it belongs to me, I do what I want. And Paul says, no, no, if you're a Christian, your body doesn't belong to you, your body belongs to Christ. Look at verse 13. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. For by his power God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Don't you know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? It's extraordinary. What he's saying is that in the past, God didn't just redeem your soul, he redeemed your body. And in the future, this is not just an outer casing, your body will be resurrected, you have a new body. And in the present, verse 19, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? God lives in you, God is always with you. It's not just your body, it's a body for God, a body for Jesus. And so when you say, oh, I can have that affair because no one sees, when well, no, the Spirit sees. I can look at that porn because no one knows. No, the Spirit knows because he's with you. We're members of Christ. Let me say as clear as I can, all sexual immorality is wrong. 
It's never okay, it's never justified, it is never right. Please don't say, oh, but we're engaged. No, you're not married yet. Uh, please don't say, uh, we're in love, it's still wrong. Please don't say, uh, I need to check whether we're compatible. You don't. Outside of marriage, it is wrong. Why? Because we're united with Jesus, God's Spirit lives in us, and because it affects other people. That's what he says in verse 18. All other sins a man commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. He said there's two people involved here. It's not just your body, actually. It's, it's the Lord's body, and other people are hurt. Please, honour God with your body. Now, I'm conscious there are people here who have failed, and maybe you're sitting here feeling guilty and feeling weighed down, and regretting that. Error. Please, please, please remember forgiveness in Christ. You know, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified. There is complete forgiveness. That's the most liberating thing in Christ, isn't it? But there's no excuse for the here and now. In the here and now, what do we do? Verse 18, we flee. Uh, we run. We run as fast as we can. We don't play with fire. We don't dabble with sex immorality. We put in boundaries. We, we, we avoid the places. We avoid the people. We're ruthless. Flee from sex immorality. But that's not the, the main motivation. What is really going to help you honour your body? What's going to help you on a body is, is that you've grasped grace. Not guilt, but grace. That you're motivated by the grace of Christ. That's what he says in verse 20. You are not your own. You are bought at a price. And therefore honour God with your body. To say, Jesus bought me. My whole being, my body and my soul and my mind, he bought the whole of me. And what did it cost him? cost him his own life and his blood that was shed that's how much your body cost him and friends that is the only real motivation for sexual purity to know who you are in Christ to know what it costs God to buy you back and to know how loved you are in Christ to say those words I, I am washed and I am sanctified and I am justified and then I want to use my body to honour Jesus and to serve Jesus and to bring glory to Jesus we live in a sex-mad world, sure. But knowing Jesus, it transforms everything. Because he gives us the motivation. And our bodies belong to him. And I pray that will transform our attitude towards sex. And our attitude towards conflicts. And that we as a church would live as a church. A people reconciled. And a people spurring each other on to honour God with our bodies. Let me pray. That is what some of you were, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Father, we praise you for our Lord Jesus, for his sacrifice, for his blood that was shed. We praise you that you have called us to be a people, loved by you, known by you, seen as pure by you. Lord, we long to be pure, and so we, help, we pray you to help us in our conflicts and in the way that we use our body. And we ask that for Jesus' sake. Amen.